COVID issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. It's Mickey doing the welcoming this week and, you know, I know I'm a cliche, but I cannot ignore the weather that has very much been in our faces recently, eh? Glorious sunshine to lashing rain and a chilly wind in a heartbeat. Ah, April. Ah, the UK. It's the weather of home, really, isn't it? And home is the focus of this week's Chops, where I'm chatting with total smasher Kieran Yates, journalist, broadcaster and author of new book, All the Houses I've Ever Lived In, Finding Home in a System That Fails Us. We all move from place to place over our lives, finding and writing the stories that make us who we are. But Kieran knows more than most about moving, displacement, connections, housing and home. Having lived in 20 different houses, and I use that word very loosely, given that one was a car showroom by the time she was 25. All the Houses is part memoir, part indictment of our current political climate, and part celebration of the things that make a home. But even though home is a human right, it is sort of mad that any of us take it for granted, given that most of us are just one paycheck away from homelessness. Add to that, the UK has an horrific housing crisis. Millions can't afford to buy, and millions more can't afford their rent. And we're just not building houses. We're certainly not building social houses. Across England, between 2021 and 2022, 21,600 social homes were either sold or demolished, but only 7,500 were built. I'm not very good at the maths, but that is not good maths. There are reckoned to be about 1.2 million households on local waiting lists for social housing in England, In Greater London, average advertised rent is just over 16% higher than it was a year ago. In Manchester, that figure is 20.5%. All of these stats are, to put it mildly, fucking depressing. But there are ways we can fight back. And we can fight back together because this is a collective fight. And Kieran describes these with hope and warmth. Both in her book, which is out on April the 27th, but available for pre-order now, and to me in this interview, which I hope you enjoy as much as I enjoyed chatting to Kieran. I'm joined on the Zoom by journalist, broadcaster and activist, and we'll get to that, Kieran Yates. Kieran, hello. Hi. We can add author to that list as well now, so would you start by telling us about your book, All the Houses I've Ever Lived In, and why you decided to write it? Sure, so my book is really the story of a family, my family, who kind of move around a lot in various different places across the UK in various kinds of housing and accommodation. And, you know, then I sort of break away from that as a teenager and, you know, as a student and think about home and housing on my own. And it's kind of that journey from a memoir perspective, but it also has like a good dose of polemic The book itself is structured in 14 chapters and each chapter says something different about the housing crisis and the way that we live in Britain today. So, yeah, it kind of maps various different places that I've lived. Not all of them are houses, but I thought the shorthand was kind of universally understood. It is an intensely personal book. You have put a lot of your trauma, your childhood, your feelings, your connections, your mini griefs, as you term them, into that book. You colour those pictures so beautifully with warmth and humour, which is great when you're talking about a lot of fury-making subjects. And you wrote a lot of All the Houses during lockdown, when this idea of home and space became 
so much more pressing for so many more people. Even as that happened, it was kind of mad to me that anyone takes home for granted anyway. Well, it was a really interesting time to write because there were kind of new conversation about not only who does and who doesn't have access to home and uh, secure housing, but also this kind of idea of home in the pop cultural imagination. And so whether that was conversations about people's Zoom backgrounds and, you know, kind of been invited in and having conversations about the details of material culture and interiors, which I'm really interested in and find their way into the book. It was also kind of about how we think about home, you know, what the homes that people were going back to, their family homes, the way, you know, that things that have always been complicated and knotty, like the way that you live with your housemates, for instance, Mm -hmm. suddenly just really became part of the overwhelming cultural conversation. And I think that that's really important because it has felt for a long time that these were conversations that felt very divorced from the mainstream, but they have an impact on how every single one of us live. Absolutely. So let's get to some fucking depressing stats. Uh, The UK has a horrific housing crisis. And yet what people need is safe, secure, decent and affordable places to live. It is, it's a human right. You, You say this over and over again in the book and rightly so. It is a human right. And it is the most vulnerable people in our society who are missing out on this right. So Kieran, the tagline of your book is finding home in a system that fails us. Can you tell me a bit about the clearly vast amounts of research that went into this and some of your discoveries? What I really found was that, you know, in the history of certainly British housing activism and and the kind of stories and the people that make that up, there's so many forgotten stories or hidden stories or stories that really have a huge impact on how we live today. So, you know, the book kind of starts chronologically at the beginning of my life in the mid 80s. It talks about my South Asian family coming to the UK and it kind of maps some of the historical housing activism, which enabled lots of communities of colour to be able to settle in the UK. And so it kind of looked at Bangladeshi uh, housing activists. It looked at the Black Parents Network. It looked at the Indian Housing Association. It looked at these kind of coalitions of people who had come together to make sure that, you know, either people could collectively raise money to put money down on a mortgage in a system known as a mortgage committee. There was a kind of safety, you know, from, you know, what was predominantly, you know, mothers, women, sisters, daughters, certainly in the Black Parents Network, who were going to schools and making their local community and area safer because often they were housed in areas that were violently racist Mm -hmm. but I also found that you know in terms of the way we live today one of the things I'd love to mention is the prototype from the inventor Jenny Spangler in 1919 and I thought this is one of like many stories that I came across who was an inventor who had this idea about a three-way like vacuum like hoover to clean the house kind of so it's like it was pink and purple and it has three nozzles basically and the idea was that it was about sort of collective domestic labor so you would share um the kind of the labor of cleaning your house with like your neighbors and it was predominantly women doing this labor at that time and then you'd sort of go over and everyone would clean each other's houses together had this kind of like social democratic approach to how we think about home and and the very individualized idea of Victorian house pride and so it it was kind of a reaction to that and I just love 
all of those little stories. And even though Jenny Spangler's invention never came to fruition for various reasons. Well, mainly because you can't sell three of them, right? You can only sell one of them. The profit motive of capitalism wants to individualise domestically. Exactly. Doesn't it? But it it just reminds us that we've been having these conversations about how we organise domestic labour since 1919 and, you know, much before that. And it has been women who have been inventing and thinking and, you know, mobilising together. And I find that so inspiring. Now, then, this is a huge positive in a book that is fighting against something that is a crisis. And so I really want to focus on it. And you've just touched on it there. And you cover it so beautifully and fiercely in all houses. And that is community, the power of community. And that is where real positive change and hope can exist, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, the book is really about also about like how housing precarity, if that is something you've experienced when you're very young, as I did, it follows you throughout your whole life. And so what do you have if you don't feel supported by the state? You know, I had that initial community from my mum, you know, who's often a single mum who made home for me in all of these different ways and taught me that very valuable lesson of how you can do that in some of the most challenging circumstances. And I took that with me. And then I found other communities of people who were doing the same thing. And we learned from one another. And so, you know, I think that housing policy is is obviously a place to look, but it's not the place to look. And the most inspiring things that I think that are happening, you know, the reportage that I did in the book that made me feel the most optimistic were about, you know, community solutions, whether that is organising against bailiff resistance, whether that is organising against the Home Office, whether that is going to your local renters union or even just teaching a young person in your life about how to read a tenancy agreement. These are all things that are being done and I just find a lot of beauty and optimism in the way that we find home for one another. And I will also say that in the history of interiors in lots of immigrant communities in the UK, it's built on community sharing. So there's a reason why, you know, for me, certainly, I went to a lot of Punjabi homes and I saw like the same kind of tchotchkes or the same tablecloth. And that's because there is a community of literal sharing. So you might come to the country and someone would lend you a tablecloth that they got. Someone would lend you something. And then you go to all these houses and there's a kind of aesthetic uniform. And, you know, I, I think that to come from a culture like that has taught me a lot about how we share and and provide and look after one another. Oh, you've led me really neatly onto something I wanted to talk about, and that is decor, uh, taste, stuff. Mm. Nothing screams wealth more than owning empty space is one of your footnotes. And I was like, oh, fucking hell yeah. And my mum became obsessed with empty space in our house, that aspiration to have empty space, even if what that actually meant was we didn't have a coffee table. That's what it meant. There was nowhere to put things because she was obsessed. I don't know. Maybe she was writhing about on the carpet when I wasn't there. There was no books or DVDs on display. It was all quite clean. And it was a total contrast to my grandma and granddad's flat which was very much what you term maximalist, including a vast collection of garden gnomes in the bedroom because my grandma was bedridden, so she couldn't get into the garden. So she had these garden gnomes in there. And I found that stuff hugely comforting. And I have probably got too much stuff. And I loved that stuff for you in your book is a real conundrum. It's a real push and pull for you, isn't it? Well, it's, you know, it's a book about moving and, you know, a book about moving is also a book about what we bring with us mm. and what we leave behind and how we make those those decisions and, you know, what are the things that 
make us feel comforted? What are the things that tell a story about our lives? What are the things that tip into hoarding? And how is taste police? So, you know, you touch on something really important there, which is that certainly when it comes to interiors, but taste across the board through the lens of arts has been sold to us by upper and middle class people. And so the idea of working class taste, you know, not being fit for purpose, maybe being kitschy or tacky, has been part of the cultural conversation for a long time. And there's this idea that working class people can't even make decisions about their interior decor. How can we trust them to make decisions about other things too? Mm-hmm. And so these things are, you know, they, they filter into the way that we organise and think about our everyday life. But yeah, we know that a lot of the way we think about taste comes from a very specific white middle class perspective. There's lots of data to explore in the book about, you know, who kind of sells these ideas of lifestyle to us. And quite often it's not working class people. And so lots of the interiors of working class homes become like ironic or, you know, they kind of, oh, I like that with a side eye. I like your, you know, snappy snaps pillow with your grandchild printed on it, you know. And so I think this is a really important way to think about the way we live because, yeah, minimalism works when you're a wealthy person because you can seamlessly kind of erase the messiness of your everyday life you can aspire to these clean lines and it's almost Kim Kardashian aesthetic as she showed us in her Vogue home video but if you are from a different class bracket then you know it says something about how you can't afford to populate your home if you have a very maximalist aesthetic, often if you're working class, that means that you're very messy or, you know, you're a collector or you're a hoarder or you don't know how to organise the aesthetics of your home. The way that we organise our home tells us a lot about who is and isn't telling us what's beautiful. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It's a bit like in The Devil Wears Prada. It all gets fed down so that all your choices are policed by the wealthy Yeah, and I think that there's lots of conversations about, oh, you know, grage, epidemic, and, you know, (laughs) grage, homes. And, you know, I think that that often just becomes a way to demonise how women choose to organise their homes. Mm. Sure. You know, and I think that there are conversations to be had about the eternal pursuit to erase any trace of human life in our homes, to erase the messy reality of our homes. But I would also say that, you know, this has been part of the way that patriarchal observation has worked historically to police our homes. Cleanliness being close to godliness, Victorian values being very close to our domestic ability to keep a clean and tidy show home. A lot of the time we target these at individuals, we might target these at clean fluencers, justice for Stacey Solomon and co. Um, But this is part of a wider historical conversation, which says the sort of very underrated, unappreciated, unwaged labour of keeping a home, which often falls to women, who often falls to marginalised women, is not respected and becomes so ripe for judgment. Absolutely. And also the energy it takes to keep everything clean and neutral and be able to wear beige and to be doing all that washing you've either got the wealth that you are having paid help and we know where that paid help tends to come from or you're spending a lot of energy doing that when maybe you could be getting involved in something that would enrich your life in other ways (laughs) 
Now, off-air listeners, I had a little chat with Kieran about the fact that I was going to introduce her as an activist and, as ever, with brilliant women who've written important things. She said, well, I don't know that I am an activist, (laughs) really, (laughs) coyly. But this book is polemic. It's manifesto. It's digging into your trauma to share and to help other people. So I think you are an activist. And I wondered whether it was your experience with housing that made you have that fire in your belly about making things better? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think journalists obviously come from a range of backgrounds and they can report on a range of things. But I think that there is an emotional quality and a precise insight that you have when you're somebody who has lived in some of the accommodation that you report on, who kind of has experienced some of the things that you talk to tenants about. And, you know, it wasn't until quite later in my life that I realised how unusual some of my experiences were, mm-hmm. you know, when I was in the newsroom or, or wherever. And, you know, it, obviously, I've I've always talked about home in some way. You know, I've, I've been a music journalist. I've kind of written about the arts. I've written about housing, obviously. And these interviews and conversations all come back to home. They all come back about how we can advocate for better. Actually, I think it's useful for you to frame it that way sometimes because, of course, my mum's an activist. You know, my mum has made home in, you know, the most egregious and challenging of environments. Of course, you know, the the people in our lives who are pushing back and resisting against racist landlords or racist policy or transphobic Mm -hmm. policy are really doing that work on the ground that makes things easier for everybody else. We know that the gender and ethnic pay gap leads to a gender and ethnic housing gap and you know this impacts everybody from kind of grassroots approaches to activism that I cover in the book like mold activists who make their own DIY spore traps out of agar agar uh, and various other things that you can make at home to uh, trap a spore in their in their bedroom and it will tell you what kind of mold you have growing so then you can maybe use that as evidence to the sceptical landlord that there's existence of black mold in your room to you know much larger kind of policy demands like the fight for clean air the fight for access to legal aid and disrepair claims so housing is notoriously complicated area of law I still don't really feel like an expert on it after many years but it impacts everybody and to some extent it's complicated by design so I just think And part of a wider conversation about housing, about how we move forward together, about how we, you know, imagine better, how we enlist the radical imaginary to think about how we can live better, how we can have home for everybody better. And, you know, I'm somebody who's experienced it and I feel the rupture of all those years of precarity every day impacts lots of decisions that I make. And it was always in the background of the writing of this book. Activist. You touched on it there, <laughs> that it's complicated by design, that housing law, and I, I couldn't agree with you more, like some of it feels, or a lot of it feels very on purpose. There are so many problems that are just sold as part and parcel of renting mm. life. You touched on it there as well, but I wanted to pinpoint a life-threatening one, and that is mould. You know, we've had the totally avoidable tragedy of the little two-year-old, Awab Ishak, who died in 2020, because of chronic exposure to black mould in his social housing flat. But there is still so little tenants can do to sort of combat this, right? Yeah, I mean, so I write about one of the homes that I live in Newcross when I was experiencing really bad mould that had an impact on my chest. 
And there's lots of conversations that came out of that. But ultimately, the housing crisis is a public health emergency. Mm -hmm. We are living in a period where people are completely impacted by the fact that we have the oldest housing stock in Europe. And there doesn't seem to be much done to kind of deal with that. Also, the fact that you know tenants don't have access to legal aid for this repair claims, which is a huge issue, and oh, it's it's maddening. It creates such a barrier. You know, if you are reliant on these no win, uh, no fee type systems to advocate for your own health, this impacts marginalised communities in very severe ways. But it also, you know, if you're somebody who's moving like me, I write about this in the book, which is that it's really difficult to even maintain the same GP over a long time. Mm-hmm. You're moving from place to place. You're experiencing all of these different things. This is what the majority of people are experiencing. You know, I'm part of my renters union. And when I go to those meetings, people are talking about mold. They're talking about damp. They're talking about disrepair. They're talking about their lungs being colonized by mold spores and not knowing what to do, not knowing how to advocate for themselves. And that's why I think it's so important to push back. You know, it's so important to say that the terms that we are supposedly Uh, forced to accept are just you know are are egregious and we can push back to it and I think that that spirit of knowing how to advocate for ourselves advocate for our communities as much as we can is so important and I think working class housing movements have always been about the right to safe home and that's everything from rent stabilization rent caps that don't render you precarious overnight because the rent suddenly escalates to good quality long-term housing, to being able to be accessible for disabled tenants. We know that 54% of disabled tenants don't live in housing that's fit for purpose. I do not think that is an exaggeration to call the housing crisis a public health emergency. I do not think it's an exaggeration either. And also just the consideration that, that used to be there not even that long ago in my lifetime, in your lifetime. So I remember when my, my grandma and granddad had to move, and as I said, my grandma was disabled. They moved them so that they were near my auntie's social housing. So at one point, my auntie, my grandma and granddad and my sister were all on the same street. And it was useful because they were all taking part in caring. It's that importance of community. And I think it's also the importance of recognising how connected this is. So in 2016, the Building Research Establishment Trust estimated that poor housing costs the NHS £1.4 billion a year. I'm sure that's more now. The fight for housing suddenly becomes also a solidarity fight about junior doctors, about saving the NHS, about workers across the board, about how we support our wider communities and create these solidarities for everyone from workers to people in temporary accommodation in the fight for social housing, even in kind of mould experts who are advising us on how we manage our day to day. So this is a very connected intersectional crisis and we should approach it that way. And obviously we need to keep chipping away at the edges, but the the demolition of capitalism uh, remains quite a long way off, I think. So what can we do as individuals in the meantime, Kieran? Well, you know, I think join your local renters union certainly is like, you know, I I think that it's really important to just kind of advocate for your own rights. But even things like having a letter template for a landlord and estate agent is so useful and is shareable. And I think that we should really have open source, transparent sharing documents about these things. Rent strikes, if they work for you. I mean, we've seen lots of examples of rent strikes working, certainly in student accommodation, 
when they work, they really work. How can we manage and look after each other and make sure that we have some kind of organized praxis around these things? You know, I talk about things in the book like, you know, enlisting the help of architects, of, you know, GPs, of our medical community, of, you know, new approaches to how we redesign social housing. I think that's really important. Obviously, we want to see more social housing or social rented housing rather than affordable housing mm-hmm. being built. Mm-hmm. But we also want to be see, we want to see it built at good quality. We don't want to see like new builds that are thrown up and, you know, aren't fit for purpose long term because we need to have an approach to housing that is long term. You know, I would love to see a private rental market that is fit for everybody, you know, that that supports you over like 20, 30, 40 years. This was kind of part of the dream of the Addison Act with social housing. Mm-hmm. You know, there are estates, like, and I talk about Maiden Lane in, in Camden, which were designed for you to spend your whole lifespan in. You would start in, you know, two bedroom, you'd move to a three bed, and then you'd be single, and you'd be in the one bed, and then you'd, and you'd move around the estate. And there are some people on that estate that have lived there their whole lives. And so there are examples of this working, but the negligence built into our housing system the transphobia, the racism, the profit motive of capitalism, which renders it completely unusable for so many people, is really sinister. It is a real problem. It is a problem for our communities, for the way that we live today. And that's even before we, if we have to make an economic argument for the cost to treasury for an aging population who are precariously homed, who do simply do not have housing and simply cannot afford to have housing as we're existing in this huge moment of like an economic crisis, which is rendering our wages completely static. So I think that my takeaway is that it's an interconnected crisis. The book does this a lot more articulately than I do when we talk about, you know, ways to move forward, ways to reimagine. But I think it's also really recognising that we are not separate interest groups. Homeowners are not separate interest groups to long-term renters, those with any kind of privilege to distribute them however you can. I do sometimes feel like on the left, you feel so guilty that you're a homeowner that you feel like you can't advocate and you don't want to talk about it. And I think transparency is really important. Being transparent about the circumstances that enabled you to do that make us understand the crisis much better. You know, I think we need to resist this idea that like homeownership is the end goal for everybody. Mm But I think that we are not separate interest groups to people in social housing, to people in temporary accommodation, to whoever. We need collective effort. And also we need to make some room for joy, you know, and I hope the book kind of tells us that not to glamorise the crisis, but these are opportunities for like real friendships, for looking out for each other, for finding beauty in like architectural design or interior designs, sort of. I know that magnolia walls exist in lots of rented properties because landlords want us to think of them as commodity shells. But actually that kind of, you know, my relationship with it is also really beautiful because that says something about the way that I grew up. You know, I know Pebble Dash exists to conceal negligence in brickwork, but I it's beautiful to me because it reminds me of the estate that I grew up in for a short term and, you know, looking at it as if they were like crystals, you know, glistening. Same, same when I was little. (laughs) You know, so I just think like, there's always joy to be found. We can always find it in each other. You know, home is sold to us as a luxury. And when home is sold to us as a luxury, it makes it much more difficult to advocate for it as a right. And so there are things to resist, but there are also things to delight in. And I don't think that guilt is necessarily 
going to move us forward. So this isn't an attack on people who might have more privilege. It's an invitation to say, join this conversation and actively become part of a future world that will benefit all of us, not only our climate futures or our security futures and our health futures, but the way that we look after each other and live together. And that's my hope. And I hope that that's my takeaway. Well, I hope that's people's takeaway. Given how much of a shit show of a crisis you cover, it is a really warm and uplifting book. So, you know, absolute credit to you on that one. (laughs) Thank you. All the Houses I've Ever Lived In is published by Simon and Schuster on April the 27th. Kieran, where can people follow what else you're up to, please? No pressure on you being up to anything. Uh, Well, you can follow me on Twitter. It's just Kieran underscore Yates. And you can follow me on Instagram. And yeah, chat to me, chat to me about how you live. And I love hearing people's stories about the objects that they bring with them. You know, I love that we know that moving is like relentless disruption, but it's also really funny and can be really joyful. And there's like, sometimes you just need to share and vent about it. And, you know, I think that I'm I'm up for that sometimes. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Thanks. Standard issue for all women.